Well, good morning, Gospel City Church. Great to see you in the house of the Lord today. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. I want to invite you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 22. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verses 34 through 40. I can't wait for the rest of today as the family of God. I was thankful that on this Sunday morning we were uh, observing uh, both... um, things that the Lord asked us to do until he comes again. We celebrated communion together, the ordinance of communion this morning. And uh, I love uh, the picture of the family of God being joined together by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we certainly want to live our lives together in remembrance. And then later today, I am so excited uh, to observe the ordinance of baptism, which Christ called us to observe. And so we will be hearing testimonies, as you already heard about, But that's going to be a powerful time as the family of God is under God's creation, singing, praying, and hearing the testifying of what Jesus does when he brings us from death to life. And so can't wait for that. Can't encourage you enough to be back at three. And we're going to leave off, uh, or we're going to continue where we left off last week with the mission statement of our church. So at Gospel City Church, we say that we are on mission to love God, love people, and make disciples of all nations. And if we learned anything last week from the Pharisees whom Jesus is talking to in Matthew chapter 22, we said it would be really easy uh, to claim a mission statement like that and be really far from living it out in our personal lives and in our walks with Christ. It'd be really easy to know the most important things that Jesus has said and miss entirely what he saved us for as we live out on this earth. And so our mission statement is only a written down iteration trying to summarize the most important things Christ has called us to, but self-worship and pride are a leading culprit in stealing our missional living for Christ. Satan wants you so focused on yourself, but Jesus's commands and example is that our lives be spent on the others for the glory of God. So the big idea I want to drill down on in our time is this. Loving people and making disciples is the visible manifestation of the love I say I have for God. Loving people and making disciples is the visible manifestation of the love I say I have for God. So last week we talked about loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We said that loving God is a whole person engagement caught up in the adoration of Christ, the Lamb. And we got to love God with our whole being, everything that we are. And I get really fired up about that. And many of you were challenged by that and get fired up about that. But it's really easy to, to say that you love God and to exude a love for God But the visible manifestation of that love for God will be seen in the way that you love the people around you. The way that you love the people in your home, the way that you love the people in your row, the way that you love the people that you work with, that you go to school with, that you rub shoulders with. The visible manifestation of the love that you say you have for God will be seen in the way that you love the person who's hard to love, the annoying person the person who's different than you, the person who brings about frustration in your life. And I've been really convicted about this this week. And to be honest, even feel a little insufficient as I stand before you this morning because I so desire uh, that my love for others show the deep, deep love that I believe I have for God. And I want you to grow with me in it. So let's look at 
Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. I just want to read the great commandment once again, and we'll pray, and then we'll dive in together. But hear the word of the Lord. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning on the first day of the week and we thank you for the opportunity that we have to start our week with Jesus. And Lord, I thank you for how the worship team so effectively pointed our attention off of the things of this world, off of ourselves and onto Christ the Lamb who is holy and who is righteous, you are worthy of our praise. And that's where we come today. Lord, I, I, I pray as we begin this um, message that your spirit would convict us. God, I'm convicted even standing here this morning that I lack at times at loving others as Jesus has loved me. And so Lord, would you help convict us and, and point us in a direction where our love for others would just exude a deep, deep love for God, a deep, deep worship of God. I pray that as we experience the glory of Christ, as we continue to submit ourselves to his word, and as we continue to pour out our worship to you, that it would only spill over into a love for those that you have put around us. And so, Lord, I pray for every husband, every wife here. I pray for every child, every parent here. I pray for every uh, co-worker, every boss. I pray for uh, each student who's here who's starting a new school semester and is coming up against new people on their dorm rooms of different personalities. Lord, I pray that we would have an opportunity to, to let them know that we are Christ by the way that we love them. So, Lord, would your spirit just move in these moments together? Would you teach us and correct us? In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Now, as we come to the great commandment, just real quickly, you, you saw last week, Jesus stumps the Sadducees. The Pharisees are hypocritical. They go to Jesus. They say, oh, we're more pious. We're more holy than the Sadducees. We can certainly stump this teacher. And so we'll put forth our greatest lawyer to test him. What is the first and greatest command? And Jesus answers them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and strength, something that was very familiar to the Pharisees. But Jesus does them one better. He goes even further and gives them a second answer to the question, something they weren't even looking for. So point number one that I really want to spend some time on today is this. A radical love for people is proof that Christ is severing my greatest problem. A radical love for people is proof that Christ is severing my greatest problem. I, I said in the first service, I was, I was almost convicted as I said it to just cross out radical. A, a love for people is proof that Christ is severing my greatest problem. A lot of times I think I, especially maybe you, could, could say, I gotta do something radical for God. I gotta, I gotta radically love somebody who's in a hard situation. And you know what Jesus wants you to do? He wants you to love people in the mundane things of everyday life. 
there's a lot of people that you could roll, bowl over trying to get radical and go to somebody outside of your sphere. And Jesus wants you to love the people within your immediate sphere before you go outside of the lines. And we all can grow at that, okay? So uh, a radical love for people is proof that Christ is severing my greatest problem. And in verse 39, he says, the second is like the first, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And as the Pharisee asked Jesus this last week, I said, he could have said whatever he wanted in this moment. Jesus could have said, uh, you need to dress a certain way, or he could have said, you need to have the Torah memorized, or you need to never miss a festival or recite specific prayers or visit a priest regularly or abstain from a list of things or jump through all kinds of religious hoops. But Jesus' first answers the lawyer with this familiar passage from the Shema, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart. It was plastered on their foreheads, dangling from their clothing. But then he says, the second command is like it. And that's a pretty serious claim from Jesus. The most important command God would give you is to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But God has a second command, and it's like the first. Jesus props up this second command next to the ever-important command of old, that the Jewish leaders, that the Jewish people have observed for centuries. And if Jesus likens something to the first and greatest command, we would be wise to pay attention to it. And then he goes on to say, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So what's Jesus talking about? Is he talking about the neighbor that lives in your neighborhood right next to you? The, the two or three houses in your vicinity? Yeah, he is. Is he talking about the people in your row here this morning at church? He absolutely is. Is he talking about the people that you work with, that you go to school with, that you rub shoulders with on a daily basis? Absolutely. When the New Testament talks about a neighbor, it's anyone that you have proximity to on a regular basis. That is your neighbor. And you are called to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, now, what do you think comes more natural in that statement? What comes more natural, loving people or loving yourself? What do you think? Loving yourself, right, absolutely. We, we love ourselves. And Jesus' statement here, it's not only a slam on the pharisaical system as a whole, but it's an indictment on one of our greatest problems, and that great problem is the love of self. See, the Pharisees, we're supposed to be hot, pious and holy and the religious leaders of the day, but they actually had no genuine love for God. And they didn't even love the Jewish people, their Jewish brothers and sisters whom they're supposed to be leading. Not only didn't they not, did they not love their Jewish brothers and sisters, but they actually hated anyone outside of that world. They hated the Gentile world. And they were heaping up all kinds of, of shame on their shoulders. Matthew 23, one chapter over, it says this, it's on the screen. But Jesus says, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you. They're going to tell you some things that are true, that come from the Torah, that come from the Old Testament law. But uh, uh, don't observe the works that they do, for they preach, but do not practice it goes on, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. 
Do you see what Jesus is condemning here? He's saying, don't claim to love God and and love people, but not live it out. You hypocritical, self-righteous Pharisees. They, They had created their own laws, their own systems, their own rules, and they were heaping shame on the very people that they were supposed to lead to freedom. The very people that they were to lead to a merciful and gracious God, they were actually heaping shame on them. They were holding them to rules that they themselves weren't willing to follow. They were doing what was right in their own eyes and condemning you for not looking like them. And we could easily fall into that category. I don't know if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, uh, but you have uh, the main character, young man, Christian, and he's, he's wearing a backpack of all of his sin and shame. Well, the Pharisees, they were just heaping more things in that backpack and he couldn't get out from under it. And it was a heavy load on his back. But as you follow Christian through Pilgrim's Progress, he gets onto the narrow road and he ends up at the foot of the cross. And what does Jesus do? Does Jesus hold him, condemn him because of all of his sin and shame? No, as he looks to Christ, the backpack falls off. All of his sin and shame is removed from him and put on Jesus, the lamb who never did anything wrong. And Christian goes free And he becomes like Christ as the Lord justifies him and sets him free. That's what the gospel does. And that's not what the Pharisees were peddling. Matthew 23, 12, Jesus goes on. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You've seen that to be true in your life. If you prop yourself up, if you try to get high and mighty, if you think that you're the end-all, be-all, and you are the king, you will be brought low at some point in time. Proverbs says, pride comes before a fall. But Jesus says, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. If you humble yourself, if you get low, if you bow your face to the Lord, let the Lord exalt you in your life. And Jesus, of course, modeled this in Philippians 2. It says that he humbled himself by becoming obedient Obedient to the point of death on a cross. And so at the core of everything Jesus did was love. At the core of everything that the Pharisees were doing was prideful idolatry. They called it love, but it was actually a self-love. And self-love is at the core of who we are as sinful humans. And it's why loving others is so difficult. Number one, because we love ourselves And number two, because people are difficult. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are difficult. Go ahead, do it right now. Yeah, you loved it. Yep. You've been waiting to say it all morning. You're loving it. Praying for the husbands in the room. But yeah, you're loving this. This is great. But have have you heard statements like this? Have you heard statements? Perhaps you've said a statement like this. My job is awesome if it weren't for people. Or maybe you said, my life's going awesome right now. It's so smooth. It's so great. If it weren't for all the people issues. I've I've said something like this, just joking. Being a pastor is a great job if it weren't for all the people. (laughs) But the problem is at the core of God's law and at the core of Jesus's gospel is people. At the core of everything that God has called us to is people. It's, it's about loving God and loving people and love is at the center of it all. Look at verse 40 in Matthew chapter 22 as Jesus lands this passage. He says, on these two commandments, what two commandments? Love God, love people. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. 
That is a massive statement from Jesus, a mind-blowing statement from Jesus. The, the word depend is actually hangs. And so, so all of the Old Testament hangs on the two commands, love God and love people. Everything that the law stands for. And remember, the Pharisees, the system, they were all about the law. They were all about the Torah, the things that Jesus gave at Mount Sinai. This is our law, and yet they've set it aside. All of the law of the Old Testament hangs on love. All, all of the Old Testament, all of the prophets of old, the fathers who came and who, who, who told of a Savior, a Messiah, were waiting on that Messiah. Everything they've ever said hangs on love. I, I read a pastor who, who was describing an illustration of this. He said, if you were to take a scroll of, of everything in your Bible, every page, every word in your Bible, if it was in one massive scroll, it'd be up here on the stage and it'd be this massive epic scroll rolled up and, and exuding from that scroll would be love. Love God, love people. This is how you love God. This is how you love people. But hanging on each side of the scroll would be two chains. And, and, and this, this statement that Jesus is saying, it gives us a glimpse into heaven. On one side of the chain would be going up into heaven and it would be attached to the right arm of the throne of Jesus Christ. And it would say, love God. And on the other side would be a chain going up to the throne of God. And on the left side of the throne of God, it would say, love people. And the entire law, the entire Bible, the entire purpose for your salvation is hanging on what the law and the prophets and scripture and Jesus have proclaimed for all time. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Even when Jesus gives the golden rule, he leaves out the love God part. He says loving people, loving others before yourself fulfills the law. This is what it says in Romans 13. Paul confirms it. He writes, for the commandments. So remember, we talked about the second six commandments are horizontal in nature. Paul writes, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. So you want to do what Christ has asked you to do, you can't do it perfectly. That's why you need Jesus and his death and burial and resurrection at the cross. But once he saves you, he puts his spirit in you to help you walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And what does it look like? It looks like loving people really well because it's the visible manifestation of what you say you have with the God of glory. Now, I want to get practical, I want to get applicational, but I really haven't defined love for you over the last couple of weeks. We've been talking about love. I assume you have a general idea of what love is or what love means, but I hope that your love of God and that your love for people is, is greater than your love for, say, tacos or greater than your love for pizza. I can get passionate about tacos. I can get passionate about pizza. If all of this life was about tacos and pizza or food, I could crush my way into heaven by filling the God of my belly. And some of you are right there with me. But Jesus's definition for love in the great commandment is a lot deeper than your love for food. So I've been, I've been reading uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Kinds of Love. And I, I think it, as I've been looking at 
Deuteronomy 6 and at the great commandment, I've, I've enjoyed just thinking deeply about this concept of love because if all of the law and the prophets hang on it, then we better think deeply about it. C.S. Lewis helps me do that. And his, his book is great. He, he talks about the four different kinds of love. I told you last week that the word worship in our English language has three different words in the Greek. Well, uh, there, the, the Bible gives us four different kinds of love or four different words for love. The first is eros, okay? And this would describe a romantic kind of love between two people. So think a husband pursuing his wife, wife pursuing the husband. Uh, Eros love is at its best between a male and a female in the covenant of marriage for the glory of God for a lifetime. So in Matthew 22, it's not talking about an Eros kind of love. The second one is philos, okay? This is where we get the word Philadelphia or phileo. It's talking about a brotherly love. Uh, It's a friendship love where two people are linked arm in arm with a common vision, goal, and delight. So I, when I think about philos love, I think about the men who went to Puerto Rico on a mission trip. I mean, a lot of philos love going on between those brothers in arms as they locked arm in arm for a mission, for the glory of God, and they went and served people so that they could point people to Jesus. That's amazing. That's an important aspect of love. Another uh, form of love is storge, and, and this is where my, my love for tacos or pizza might go. It's an affection for something special or meaningful to you, okay? So if your wife says, hey, babe, I'm going to throw out all these old t-shirts because you got way too many of them, and you're like, nah, you can't throw them out. I love those t-shirts. That's where storge comes in. You don't need those t-shirts. Let your wife throw those t-shirts out. You do have too many of them. Okay, but Matthew 22, it's not talking about storge love either. It's talking about agape love. That's the fourth love. You've heard about it. It's a fatherly divine love. It's a divine love characterized by sacrifice in the pursuit of another person's good. Only someone who has been saved by the blood of Christ is capable of agape love. And that love that you are now capable of exuding was shown to you first. It came from God. It, it, it's, a, it's commanded of believers. Agape love is empowered by the spirit. It's taught and demonstrated by God himself. It's undeserved love that seeks the recipient's highest good, not activated by virtue in the recipient. It's given even if the love is not reciprocated or received. And it's love that finds its perfect expression in Jesus Christ and the cross. The love that Jesus is, is commanding us to give to God and to give to others above ourself is a cross-shaped love. It's an unconditional, sacrificial, undeserved love toward a recipient, whether deserving or not. And you shall love your neighbor with an agape kind of love as you naturally love yourself, as you will naturally think about yourself, as you will naturally be inclined to lean toward what you desire rather than the desires of your neighbor or your brother. So ask yourself the question, what keeps you from loving others as you love yourself? What keeps you from doing it? Maybe it's your fear of being accepted in certain circles. Maybe you don't know how to agree to disagree with people or to accept the differences of others. People are going to have different opinions and different personalities and different preferences and different 
politics. Does that mean that we should hate everyone who is different than us? Absolutely not. Does it mean that we should badmouth those people behind their back? Definitely not. But boy, I have seen it in the church. Boy, I have seen it among people who call themselves Christians. I'm sure I've been guilty of it. I have been guilty of it. But if you have a negativity problem, a gossip problem, a bad-mouthing problem toward others, the only proper response is to repent and to die to yourself. Only proper response. This is not what exudes from a follower of Jesus who has been loved by God unconditionally. You know, a, a political season is coming up. I told the first service, I wish I could go to sleep till it's over. <laughs> and, and once it happens, here's what happens. We, we, we tend to start taking sides a little bit in the body of Christ. And this is kind of like the end all be all. And if my political system doesn't go the way that I think it should go, then the world is absolutely over. And so I got to let somebody know about it. No, you don't. You got to let somebody know about the fame and renown of Jesus who has higher dominion and higher authority than any kingdom of this world. And he's actually ruling and reigning over the kingdom of this world. And he gives them to whomever he pleases. And so we will do our best as followers of God to align with the principles of God's word and to pray desperately for our finite country to experience Jesus Christ. But I'm not putting my hope in the political system or in the political parties because Jesus reigns and this is not my home. Amen. So the way that you start to talk about it and the way that you start to post on Facebook, let your words be seasoned with love. No one is going to come and follow Christ if you're arrogant and you're rude and you're trying to start fights and you're tearing people down. Don't get sucked in to the climate of the culture because of your opinions and your differences with others, let us love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Maybe you have a hard time loving others as you love ourselves because of the stereotypes you've created or allowed society to construct in your minds about others. Maybe some of those cultural barriers are true, but you've allowed fear to keep you from crossing the lines. Praise God that Jesus didn't do that to us. Praise God that Jesus left his high and holy throne room in heaven to cross the cultural barriers to come to our world and incarnate himself among us and to love us when we were the least of these. Perhaps it's a desire to simply stay comfortable or to protect your own personal rest and relaxation. Listen, people are exhausting. Loving people will be exhausting. And if you're going to love someone else over yourself, it's going to take sacrifice on your part and in your life. But I've seen it happen. I've seen it in this church. I've seen it happen in the body of Christ. You may give up money to meet someone else's needs out of generosity. You may give up an afternoon nap or listen to, to listen to a hurting friend or make a lasting memory with a child. You may give up your evenings of watching movies or playing games to serve a meal somewhere or to help meet the physical needs of others. I've seen people create room in their family for those who do not have a family or room in their home for those who do not have a home. But living to love others may mean becoming interruptible with your private time or your relaxation time. I, I hear the phrase sometimes among our staff, you see a need, you meet a need. That's a great way to live your life as a believer with missional eyes, looking at those that are around you. What do they need? Not what do I need? What do I feel? What do I want to do to feel comfortable today? How can I love somebody like Christ has loved me? Proverbs 3, 
27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come again tomorrow. I will give it when you have it with you. You see a need, you meet a need. And really, the core problem that keeps us from loving others as ourselves is ourselves. It's our own selfishness, and all of us struggle with it. It was the Pharisees' problem, and it spilled over into how they operated as spiritual individuals. They were judgmental of others. They thought they were better and more qualified than others. They talked the talk but didn't walk the walk. They looked down on people who were different than them. They segregated. They did what made them comfortable, happy, or gave them an easier life. And this is not the way that Christ commanded us to live. Jesus' love was not a selfish love. It was, it was not a self-love. It was a denial of himself. It was a deep love of God that was manifested in a radical love for you. And even as I was thinking about this this week and contemplating this, this week, I was tearful at, at the kind of love that Jesus has extended to me. Jesus' example of love set aside religious perception for compassionate relationships. Jesus set aside personal comfort for friendship towards societal sinners. Jesus set aside time management for the broken, for the hurting, for the suffering. Jesus set aside his own safety for the protection and the forgiveness of those who don't deserve it. And listen, his love was not lip service, but it was an action-oriented, stop you dead in your tracks, extravagant kindness toward the most unlikely recipients. His love eliminated social constructs and political lines. His love eliminated us versus them terminology. His love saw beauty in the most marred, unlovable, most unclean and offensive humans. And Jesus' example was a perfect picture of the greatest demands God gives to us this morning. Amen. Love God and love people. <laughs> Loving people is the only proper response to a savior who loved you at your worst. Loving all kinds of people is following the example that Christ left us. What did he do? He loved the leper. He loved the prostitute. He loved the cheaters and the gamblers and the drug addicts and the alcoholics. And he crossed racial divides. He loved the rich and the poor. And he loved the very enemies that nailed him to a cross of wood. And Jesus' love for the Father fueled his love for you if you're a child of God here today, and likewise, your all-encompassing love for God should be fueling your love for others. I'd encourage you to just continue to ponder this this week, and I'd encourage you to read 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 4. But listen to what 1 John 4, 19 through 20, and he, we love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God, there's the vertical relationship, and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And your radical love for all kinds of people is proof that Christ is severing your prideful problem of putting yourself first. Of thinking of yourself first of living your life for selfish gain. Christ wants to sever that problem in your heart so that you would love people 
as you love yourself. So three practical things. Three things loving your neighbor will do for you real quickly. Number one, it will feed your soul more than temporal things can. You live your life to love others, it will feed your soul more than temporal things can. Uh, I'm thinking of Jesus in John chapter 4. He gets to uh, the well and he tells his disciples, I'm hungry. He was famished and he sends his disciples to go get food. Jesus is sitting there by the well. You know what? And then the Samaritan woman, Jews and Samaritans didn't mesh. They didn't talk to each other. They actually hated each other. Well, here comes the Samaritan woman to draw water. You know what Jesus didn't do? I'm too hangry to talk to people today. I'm just going to sit here and sulk in my own feelings and what I want. He didn't just sit there and ignore the Samaritan woman. He, he didn't allow his hunger for something to deter him from loving people. No, he, he, he moved toward the woman, and the woman drew him water, and he offered her living water. And he had a spiritual conversation, and he ends up talking to her, and she says that she worships. But Jesus says the hour is coming when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then they get into like a, a, a little talk about her past and, and what her life looks like. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus is like, you are right. You actually have five husbands, and you're living with someone now, and, and you need to repent and you need to go back and talk to that person. And, and, and Jesus did some work. And, and the woman goes and she repents and she believes. And eventually the city comes to know the Lord because of Jesus' work. Well, guess what? The disciples come back and they bring the food to Jesus. And they're like, hey, Jesus, we brought the food that you wanted. You asked us for. We're being great disciples. And Jesus is like, not hungry. What do you mean you're not hungry? Somebody bring you food? I have food that you know not of. And it is to do my father's work. <laughs> Sharing the gospel, loving the people that Jesus had proximity to was far more fulfilling than anything temporal he could get his hands on in this life. His physical hunger was no match for the hunger that should be in our souls as all-encompassed lovers of the glory of God. And so if your life is for the glory of God and if you are living your life to love those that are around you, I promise you it will feed your soul more than temporal things that you can get your hands on. That's anything. Number two, it will give you proximity to tangible needs you can meet. Give you proximity to tangible needs you can meet. I was talking with a brother this morning who said, you know, we, it's just like, we live in neighborhoods now where you just drive into your garage door, you shut your garage door, and you go into your safe haven of a backyard, and you never have to talk to anybody. And that's not how it's meant to be. We're on mission together. You got to get to know your neighbors. And so go across the street and have a conversation with your neighbor. doesn't mean you have to be like totally weird by condemning them to hell in the first conversation that you have uh, with your faith, okay? Like you got to learn the art of loving people. And uh, I counted a blessing. I moved into a new neighborhood. I counted a blessing. I've had a lot of conversations with my neighbors. I haven't had to tell them yet that I am a pastor. And I, I'm thankful for that. I've had some multiple ones. Because when I tell them I'm a pastor, the wall goes up. And everything gets a little weird. And it's like they start apologizing for their language and stuff like that. And I'm like, you don't know how to apologize to me. Apologize to God. We'll talk about that later. Uh, uh, but, but it's a real thing. And I'm just thankful to have some conversations. But some of my neighbors, they desperately need Jesus. They got some things going on in their life that I definitely think Jesus would address, that the word of God would address. I would see things a little differently than they do. But I am not going to get to that conversation if I don't love them. And if I don't take my time to talk with them. And if I don't get to know them. And, and I guarantee you the place that they are in life right now 
no matter how sinful it might be from my perspective, uh, there, were, there, were, there were things in their life that led to where they are right now. And if you can get to know someone's past, the Lord may use you for their future. But are you willing to get outside of your comfort zone and love your neighbors more than your own self and quiet time and backyard and all of that? Number three, I will help you get victory over selfish sin. Three things loving your neighbor will do. It will help you get victory over selfish sin. Uh, a bored Christian is a dangerous Christian. Uh, an isolated believer is a dangerous place to be. Satan is going to attack you in that time. Because you are naturally inclined to love yourself, Satan will tempt you to love yourself with the ideas of your heart and your mind whenever you are alone. And so I talk to people all the time. It's like, I can't get victory over this sin. I keep falling into the same sin, the sin of lust, the sin of pride, all of these things. And, and it's like, well, are you serving others? Are you loving others? Or are you sitting alone in those moments and giving in to the temptation? You don't want to know a great way to get victory over sin? Get outward. Because if you're looking inward, you are going to spiral downward. But if you get outward, the Lord will give you proximity to people so that you can love them as Jesus has loved you. And it will spur on a deeper love for Christ. Disciples are at their best when they're discipling someone else. You will be a better follower of Jesus if you get along somebody else and you talk about Jesus all the time and you try to help them understand the gospel or the deep things of scripture. As you help somebody else with their discipleship journey, it's going to help you because you are thinking outwardly rather than inwardly, okay? That's point number one. That was a long one. We could probably just land the plane, but we'll keep going. Number two this morning, an obedience to make disciples around the world is fueled by loving God and loving people. You know this, an obedience to make disciples around the world is fueled by loving God and loving people. I'm not gonna go super deep today, but turn to Matthew chapter 28 with me if you would. Matthew chapter 28, and this is the great commission. Jesus gave the great commandment days before he died on the cross, and then before he ascended into the heavenly places, he gave the great commission to his apostles. The great commission is fueled by the great commandment. And this is what it says in verse 18 of chapter 28. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So we better listen up. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, as you look at the Great Commission, which you're familiar with in your English translation of the Bible, it'd be easy to kind of put the emphasis on, on several different things. You could emphasize baptize or you could emphasize going. And uh, it kind of looks like there's several imperatives. Well, as you look into the original Greek, the imperative uh, in the original Greek, the main explicit imperative of the Great Commission is make disciples of all nations. Make disciples. At the center of what Jesus was saying, at the center of what Jesus left believers to do until he comes again, the imperative is make disciples. And then he gives us three active participles surrounding the imperative so that we know how we are to do it. We, we make disciples when we go, when we baptize, and when we teach. 
So I'll just end on, on a quick explanation of each of those. Before I do it, what is a disciple? Why are we making disciples? How are we making disciples? I, I loved kind of changing our mission statement to love God, love people, making disciples of all nations. It used to be just glorify God and make disciples. But loving people is different than making disciples. And you're called to do both. Because there's a lot of people that you won't be making a disciple of. They don't care about anything that you have to say. They don't care about anything spiritual that you would give them. You're still called to love them. Jesus said you, you're to love your enemies. You're supposed to love those who persecute you and hate you. And so before the discipleship journey or an even, even an evangelistic conversation ever happens, you are called to love people radically. But our goal as disciples of Jesus is to make more disciples. And a disciple is a learner of Christ. Pretty simple definition. It's, it's like a, a, an apprentice of Christ, a, a, someone who is learning all the things to follow Jesus. Making disciples is often summed up in the term discipleship. If you have one of these uh, culture guides, we've been giving these out, and it's just kind of like a, a first pass at some of the things we say regularly. Grab one on, in the lobby. But if you open it up on the third panel of the culture guide, it says, disciples of Jesus, glorify, gather, grow, and go. And then it's got this helpful phrase underneath it. It says, discipleship is the lifelong submission of every believer to be a continual learner of what Jesus taught, how he lived, and what his word continues to teach us for life and godliness. There's not a person in this room whose discipleship has ended. If you are breathing and you're still on this earth, you are in a process of discipleship and the Holy Spirit is working that out in your life through the process of sanctification and it will go a lot better for you if you submit yourself to the lifelong opportunity to learn the way of Jesus. And that's why we offer everything that we do at this church. But the first uh, 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 participle in the passage for making disciples is first go. It's an active movement toward locomotion, toward others with a purpose to tell them about Jesus. Here's what I wrote in the culture, or what we wrote in the culture guide. Church is a launching pad, not a landing strip. As the message of Jesus radiates within the walls of Gospel City Church, it sends us into the world with the good news of the gospel. We want every disciple to be on a mission to make more disciples, and this takes us out of our comfort zone by challenging us to say, here I am, send me. Think about Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. He goes before the throne room of God, and he sees the Lord in all of his splendor. And the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. All you do in the throne room is love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You think Isaiah wanted to leave there? I wouldn't want to leave there. But, but a believer who still has breath in his lungs, a believer who is not done on the earth, they know they can't stay in the throne room. They know that when they, they, they see or experience the glory of Christ through loving him with your whole being, it just spills over into every other area of your life. And so as Isaiah was standing there, oh, I want to stay, but I'll get to stay for eternity for now. Here I am. Send me, Lord. I've seen your glory. Now I got to go tell somebody to come along with me. I got to go tell somebody what, what they're missing. I got to tell somebody about the glory of Jesus, your love for God should just spill over into your love for the people that you come in contact with. So we're always going. Here's a picture that somebody sent 
uh, a staff member on our church. And, and, and you can see he's wearing our You Are Loved shirt that we made. And he was getting on a plane heading to somewhere. He, here's the text that he sent to our staff. On my way to San Diego, two people asked me what sh- my shirt meant. And I had the privilege of telling them about our church and the message behind that shirt. This morning, I had second thoughts about wearing it, thinking to myself, maybe it's not the time or the place. I am thrilled that the Lord put it on my heart to wear it while traveling. Unapologetic faith, unapologetically faithful is truly the way to be. Six months plus after our trip, talking about a trip to Puerto Rico, and I am still energized by the Lord and all of you. Couldn't be more grateful. God is good. Can we just give him a round of applause for boldly sharing his faith, unapologetically faithful, and the means came through just simply wearing a shirt that says, you are love. What's that mean? And he had an opportunity to open his mouth for the glory of Christ. I ran into a, a, a lady recently at a restaurant, and she was telling me, just as she's been coming here over the last couple of years, her love for God has really started to just transform them and their family, and, and her family, who is out of town, has seen the change in them, And she said, so I recently got the opportunity to open my mouth and I shared kind of what the Lord is doing in us through the church and through the gospel. And it was the best I've ever done it. It was the most effective I've ever done at sharing my faith with my family. And I was so thankful for it. And I was sitting there just thinking, that is amazing. She didn't manufacture anything. Her love for God was just spilling over as she communicated the hope of Jesus Christ in her life. That's how it should be in your life. What goes up leads out. And so love him with your whole being and the manifestation of that will be loving others as you love yourself. The second second participle we get is baptism. We'll see that today. Baptism is an initiation or a formal declaration of our allegiance to Christ. It's an outward expression of the inward transformation that happened in the life of a believer. So you giving, going through, obediently going through with the outward expression of baptism is you making a decision to obediently declare Jesus is your Lord. You, you don't have to be uh, intimidated or embarrassed of sharing your testimony in front of a lot of people. Uh, and maybe you get stage fright But here's the thing, we all got the same story. We all started dead in our trespasses and sins, but God has made us alive in Christ. It's your story from the gospel of Jesus Christ awakening you that actually unites us together. And it's a beautiful uh, depiction of all that Christ is doing. If you were baptized as a baby and at some point in your life you repented and you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have to be embarrassed about getting back in the water and getting dunked the way that we see it happening in the New Testament and coming up out of the water like Jesus did in Matthew chapter three, you will never regret obedience in your life to God this side of heaven. And so so baptism is simply that. It's just me saying, the Lord has changed me. The Lord is Lord of my life and I wanna tell others about it. It's not something that I have done or I would boast on it. It's not something that happened in my past or I would boast about it. It's something that Christ has done and now I'm going to tell the world what Jesus has done. And finally, we teach all that Christ has commanded. It starts with love God, love people, and make disciples of all nations, but it expands to every other area and every other way that Jesus showed us how to live and to what he told us about his father. 
And this is and has been much of the effort of the leadership of this church over the last year. That's what we're constantly working on. How do we help disciples grow into Christ? How do we help disciples who are making disciples uh, get established and equipped in the faith so that you can then go and love people effectively, so that you can then go and make disciples effectively? It's why we have groups, classes, and studies starting I don't know where you're at, but I can't encourage you enough to gather in the smaller setting. We got the large setting on Sunday morning. This is not enough. This should just stoke your fuel for more. Get in a small setting. Groups are often uh, people of different walks of life, families, single people, older people, younger people, people with kids, people with no kids, gathering in a circle in a home. And the one another's are on display and, and we're serving together and we're holding one another accountable and we're confessing sin to one another. That's one aspect. We got Bible studies starting up, men with men, women with women, an awesome opportunity for you to get uh, instruction from God's word, which is the authority, and then get in a circle where you can just discuss how the Lord met you this week as you were studying God's word for yourself in its proper context and how we can apply it to our lives as men and as women. And then we have classes so that you can deepen your doctrine and so that you can learn your theology. And why do you need to do that? Because you can't worship what you do not know. And as you deepen your knowledge of God, which, yeah, it might be hard. And yeah, it might stretch your mind. And yeah, it might be a little rigorous. But this side of heaven, what better thing could you spend yourself on? And as you get in a class and as the Lord begins to conform you to his word and conform you to the image of his son, it will begin to spill out of you and your love for people as you serve Christ the Lord in all that you are doing. So back to where we started, loving people and making disciples is the visible manifestation of the love I say I have for God. And as the team's coming out, uh, I, I, I told you, I feel a little, you know, just raw today, I guess, as I'm talking through some of this because I, I just am so um, convicted to grow in my love for others. Uh, I'm so convicted to, 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 to do this better. And um, even this week, I realized moments where I may have been uh, diminishing, where I may have been uh, uh, impatient with people. And the love I say I have for God <laughs> is visibly manifested in the small ways that I love the people around me and in the big ways that I serve my city and my community. And I, I wasn't, I was trying not to share this. And at the end of the last service, I shared it. I'll share it with you. Um, I, I feel like I had a big fail this week in, in loving others and making disciples of, of people. And, and uh, I was at, a, at this coffee shop in South Bend and I was writing this sermon. I had my headphones in, I was listening to worship music. And I, I got to that section that I just preached about uh, the way Jesus has loved me. And I was sitting there writing how Jesus crossed lines and how Jesus loved me when I was unlovable. And, and I just started weeping in the middle of this coffee shop. I mean, I had tears and snot and all, and you're just kind of trying to like be in your little bubble. And uh, I was sitting there. It was kind of like this moment of worship. And, and then uh, the spirit just kind of hit me like, you got to tell somebody about this. 
Like, God loves you so much. You got to tell somebody. And I was like, I'm preaching about, like, my love for God. And this feels like a loving moment between me and God. I got to let it spill over to somebody. And the only person sitting beside me was this one girl. And she was in her thing. She was, like, studying for school and had headphones in. And she was not interested or not thinking about me at all. And I was sitting there. And, and, and I was like, I could just turn to her and be like, I know this is going to sound crazy. And I look like an absolute psycho. But I just want to tell you how Jesus loves you. I was thinking that, that was the internal battle I was having. And I was like, nah, it's not, this isn't the right moment. I'm just going to be disruptive. It's not going to land. I went to the bathroom. I like cleaned my face up, blew my nose, all that. Came back out, got back into the sermon, internal battle again. I'm like, I got it. I, 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 I need to do this. Just start it. Cold turkey. Who cares? It's going to be cool. She starts getting up to leave. I'm like, that's my only chance to take out my earbud. I, I, I very subtly didn't obey the Lord. And, uh, and she packed it up and she walked away. And I felt like an absolute loser in that moment, disobedient. And I, 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 I went away praying. I felt like Peter who denied Christ. <laughs> and uh, I'm thinking, what is my problem? I'm trying to preach a sermon about loving people. And I didn't even take the, the, the subtle prompting and the obedience to share it with this girl and Christ has been so good to me, how could I not share it with somebody else? I share that with you because I'm sure you've experienced something like that. I'm usually looking for like an in, uh, in a conversation. I'm usually looking to, for a way to take it spiritual. I am weak when it comes to uh, just starting up a conversation about Jesus out of nowhere. I envy guys like Paul Fowles in the first service or Kent Yoder's this 80 year old man. He can tell a waitress she's going to hell and she just smiles at him. It's amazing. <laughs> Uh, but, but some people are just, they're just so gifted at, at, at being evangelistic and loving. I want to grow at that. And I, as your pastor, need to grow at that. And I'm convicted to grow at that because I, I do love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I want it to spill out in every aspect, even the moments where the Spirit prompts me to do something that's a little out of my comfort zone and a little abnormal so that somebody might hear that Jesus loves them and gave up his life for them. So why don't you stand to your feet and I uh, just want to pray and encourage you uh, to continue to ponder this this week. Let's grow together in this this week. Let's respond in faith to the Lord. Lord, we love you. We give you glory and uh, honor and praise. Lord, thank you for your mercy that triumphs over our failure. Uh, thank you that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Thank you um, that your spirit prompts us to obey and to share our faith. Thank you that your spirit also prompts us to repent when we disobey. And Lord, I pray that every failure that I ever have would lead me quickly to the cross so that sin wouldn't abound, but so that Jesus, you would be seen faithful in my life and on the throne of my life. Do that in all of us so that the world outside would know we are Christians by our love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.